Please know that this episode contains content that some people may find disturbing. While our goal is to address relevant and important science faith topics, we also want a positive experience for our audience. Welcome, everybody, to this special edition of Star Cells and God. This is the podcast where we explore how the discoveries that are taking place in the frontiers of science provide evidence for God's existence and the reliability of Scripture. Uh, this podcast is sponsored by Reasons to Believe. If you want to know more about Reasons to Believe, go to our website, reasons.org, or you can follow us on social media at rtb underscore official. Also, if you're watching this podcast, please, uh, uh, on our YouTube channel, uh, Reasons to Believe, make sure that you subscribe and that you hit the bell icon so that you are reminded when new episodes of Star Cells and God drop. Uh, today, we're going to be taking on the question, are chemical abortions safe? And my name is Fuzz Rana. I'm a biochemist and a Christian apologist. I work for the organization Reasons to Believe, and today we have a special guest with us, uh, a person who is eminently qualified to take on this really challenging question, and her name is Dr. Christina Cerucci. And so, Chris, I'm so grateful that you're here and, and part of the podcast today, so thanks for taking the time to be with us. Thanks, Fuzz, for having me. I'm very happy to be here. I'm excited to talk to you. Well, you know, uh, before we, we we get into this really important question uh, that we're going to engage, I think it's would be good for uh, our listeners to get to know you a little bit. So what I thought I would do is I would read your, your bio, and then maybe you and I could just uh, uh, talk a little bit about uh, your work uh, as a, a, an OBGYN physician, if that's okay with you, and then we'll get into the, the issue of, of chemical abortions. Um, I'm going to go ahead and and pull up the, the bio here. And, and uh, you are a board certified OBGYN that you've worked for 20 years in private practice outside of uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Interestingly enough, you started your, your career as a mechanical engineer uh, with a, a degree from Virginia Tech. Uh, and then um, that you earned a, a, an MD uh, from Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, completed a residency at the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond, and then also have a training in biblical ministry from Columbia International University. You are currently an associate scholar for the Charlotte Logier Institute. You're the vice chair of the, uh, the board of directors of the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. You also are part of our scholar community here at Reasons to Believe. And you've published a number of peer review articles in the medical literature on the complications of medication abortions or, or chemical abortions. And then you also uh, have taken a number of medical mission trips to different parts of the world, including Bangladesh, at, on a volunteer basis. So, again, I can't think of a, a better person really to help us uh, uh, address this question of chemical abortions. Uh, Chris, I'm just uh, interested. Um, what made you decide to go to medical school? You 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 were working as a, a mechanical engineer. So what what caused the you to, to shift careers? Well, first of all, thank you for the kind introduction. Um, when I was in high school, I always wanted 
to be a doctor. I always wanted to be in medicine. Medicine fascinated me. But when I was in high school and you look ahead at 12 years of training to become a physician, it just seems kind of overwhelming. Mm. It came from a family of engineers. I was good at math. I wanted to get a job. So engineering just seemed to kind of make sense. So I you know, got a degree in mechanical engineering. I worked in the nuclear power field for seven years, uh, but I never really liked it. it wasn't really my niche. Um, sometimes I joke that I wasn't smart enough to be an engineer, so I went to medical school. Um, so I went and did what I always wanted to do, went to medical school. Before I did that, I actually volunteered and became an EMT and volunteered after work on an ambulance. I felt like it was a big decision and I better make sure. Yeah, I really right. liked the medical field and I loved it. So I'm very happy. It was a good switch for me. I don't regret my years in engineering. I learned a lot there as well, but that's kind of my story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it takes a lot of courage to, 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 to make that kind of change. Um, why did you specifically decide to specialize in, in, in OBGYN medicine? Yes. When I went to medical school, I would have never thought that would be what I would choose. I, I liked the idea of continuity of care with my patients and getting to know people over their life. And I assumed I would go into primary care, family practice, or internal medicine. But uh, in the last two years of medical school, you spend six weeks in each, six weeks or so in, in different rotations and different uh, specialties. And I found that I really liked being in the hospital and being in the action. And I didn't really, I, I liked the office, but I didn't really want to be there all the time. But, you know, a lot of surgical subspecialties you kind of do the surgery and then you never see the patient again. So obstetrics and gynecology is great because number one, you have this continuity of care with your patients over the long term. I see people from adolescence to you know old age. In fact, I, I knew I was old when I actually saw a patient as a patient and she said, You actually delivered me. <laughs> so but I, I also like the variety. Uh surgery in the operating room and then delivering babies, taking care of pregnant women, and then also in the office. So it wasn't what I was expected when I went to medical school, but I, I, I love the field of obstetrics. Okay. So now, uh, Christina, you are a, a committed Christian. Yes. And so how does your faith uh, as a Christian really inform your work um, in, in medicine? My faith definitely informs my work. So OBGYN is not an easy field to be a Christian because there are so many ethical issues. I remember in medical school, you know, we're all talking about, well, what are you going to go into? What are you going to go into? And another student who was a Christian said, well, I know I'm not going into OBGYN because that is just too many ethical issues. I don't want to deal with that. And I thought, well, he's right, but that's not a good reason not to go into that. And shouldn't we have Christians in the field? And um, if God is real, if God is, isn't he big enough to help me? My faith definitely informs my work and particularly in, you know, in ethical issues, but particularly the biggest of those is abortion. Mm -hmm. If you believe as I do that life begins at conception and people are made in the image of God, then it's not only abortion that's an issue, but also certain kinds of contraception. Does, is this an abortifacient? Does this kill uh, a human being. I, you know, I had to evaluate all of that. So I, you know, it informs all of my work. I've committed my life to Jesus Christ. It informs everything I do, including as a physician. 
So then uh, as a, a Christian OBGYN, do you perform abortions? Do you feel pressured to, to perform abortions? Because I'm under the, the maybe naive perception that, you know, there's a lot of pressure for medical students, residents, even practicing physicians to, to perform abortions because, you know, currently it's the law of the land. I do not perform abortions. Uh, you know, both science and my faith inform the fact that life, human life begins at conception and abortion is killing. It's not healthcare. Um, as an obstetrician, I like to say I have two patients, the mother and the baby. Mm-hmm. Now, I trained in the 90s. So I think that now people, there is a lot more pressure. I, I would say I personally never felt pressure to perform abortions. It's a harder issue in training when you're a medical student, particularly when you're a resident. Um, when I interviewed for residencies, I kind of had to weave that into uh, the discussion about, you know, whether that was going to be okay that I don't perform abortion. So there's probably maybe places that didn't take me for that reason, or who knows. But um, I think now it is very, very different environment, unfortunately. Yeah. And yeah. there's a push to making doctors do that, which is simply wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then um, just a, a, maybe a more uplifting question here. Uh, what, what are some aspects of, of, of the, uh, the process of human pregnancy or the birthing process, or even embryological development and fetal development that just cause you to go, wow. Right. You know, that just as a, right. Well, the first wow has to be birth. I mean, I've delivered thousands of babies, but it's still amazing. It's an amazing um, process. The uterus is an amazing organ. I mean, it's like, we don't really think about the uterus being an amazing organ, but it it is, it's the size of, you know, smaller than my fist and then grows big enough to hold a nine pound baby or two or three, five pound babies there. And then you know, the cervix and how it dilates and the whole process, the placenta is amazing, how it nourishes the, the baby. Um, it all points to a creator, but then in that moment of birth and, you know, you have this screaming, hopefully screaming baby coming out. It's truly amazing. The, the other aspect is development. Um, you know, we study embryology, embryologic development, but you really can see that when I've had patients who have had a miscarriage or a, maybe a stillbirth earlier in pregnancy, and you see this little tiny baby, too tiny to, to live outside the womb, but it's fully formed and there's no question it's a human. And it just, it's heartbreaking, mm-hmm. but it also points to the creator and that this is a precious human being. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you. Okay. So um, let's go ahead and now and get into, you know, some of the questions that deal with, with chemical abortions. And the first thing is probably what is a chemical abortion? I, I don't know how many people are really familiar with the, the whole process of, of, of chemical abortion. So what is that precisely? Good question. So there's lots of terms it's used by chemical abortion, medication abortion, medical abortion, the abortion pill, those terms would all refer to the same procedure. So the kind of typical original way that an abortion is performed, 
would be surgically. Now I'm referring in, in this discussion mostly to first trimester abortions in the first you know, mm-hmm. trimester of pregnancy. So before chemical abortion was approved, a first trimester abortion would be performed by a DNC, dilation, curatage, or dilation and evacuation. So dilate the cervix and then suction out the baby. Um, a, a chemical abortion is done with medications to induce the loss of the baby. Um, it's done with two medications, mifepristone, and then one or two days later, misoprostol, and it causes the fetal death and it causes the, um, the, the uterus to contract and expel the baby. Now, I think the general consent or not consensus, but maybe misperception is that, oh, well, that must be safer than having surgery. It's not actually chemical abortion is less safe than surgical abortion. And there's a push, there's such a push to make this, you know, almost over the counter. There's uh, online narratives of uh, abortion at home is safer than Tylenol. Well, it's not, it's not even as safe as a surgical abortion. Mm. There's a lot of misinformation. So then, so then how common are, are chemical abortions? They're very common. So they were approved in the United States in 2000. Um, and at this point now, they are more than more than 50%. I think it's 54% of abortions are, are chemical abortions. And there are, uh, the last year of data, which I think was 2020, 930,000 chemical abortions in the United States. That's almost a million. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Very large number then. And then uh, you're meant, you mentioned that uh, chemical abortions are actually less safe than a medical abortion. So what are some of the the, the risks of, of chemical abortions? What are you know some of the side effects, if you will? Yeah, great question. And it's a very involved question. If we could talk first, let me explain how these work. So, okay, that'd be great. That would be great. Uh, the me- so there's two medications. They both begin with an M. They can be remembered because they're alphabetical. So the first medicine is mifepristone, also known as mifeprex or RU486. Okay. So it's a... Um, progesterone receptor agonist, it works on the progesterone receptors in the uterus and basically works as an anti-progesterone. So progesterone is required to maintain a pregnancy. The woman's a pregnant woman, her body produces progesterone to maintain the baby. And so when you get, you counteract that with an anti-progesterone, mifepristone, it kills the baby. So the woman takes that orally on the first day. And then one to two days later, she takes a second medication called misoprostol. Now that, or Cytotec, and that causes contractions to expel the baby. Now, misoprostol is actually a medicine get used for people on long-term non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications to um, prevent ulcers. We use it in, in obstetrics all the time for good reasons, inducing labor, preventing, uh, treating postpartum hemorrhage, but in this case, it's used to expel the baby. So it's these two, two medicines. And um, so that's kind of how they, they work. And they're administered several days apart from each other. Is that correct? Correct. The one is given orally on, and then the, uh, the second one is given actually buccally. So that's in the back of the cheek uh, two days, one to two days later. Okay. All right. And so then um, 
what would then be the, the risks of that particular procedure? Well, that is a great question. And it depends on what studies you look at. So if we just talk about normal side effects, any medicine has side effects. So side effects, the typical experience, a woman take these medicines, she's gonna have severe cramping and bleeding and maybe nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. Um, the product insert tells the woman expect to bleed nine to 16 days, um, but 8% of women bleed more than 30 days. Now this is just from the, the manufacturer admitting this, um, but you know, some women describe really severe like labor pains and very heavy bleeding. And you know, then they're passing the baby at home and then what do they do then? That it's just a horrible situation. But now if we talk about, and that's if everything goes the way it's quote unquote supposed to go. Um, but if we wanna talk about complications um, the two most common complications would be hemorrhage, maybe requiring transfusion, maybe requiring surgical completion. And the other co most common would be retained tissue. So the woman passes a, the baby or some of the pregnancy and there's still tissue in, left and she will bleed. She will continue to bleed, bleed, she get infected. And that usually requires mm. surgical completion. So those are common known complications. There's also risk of infection. There's also risk of, well, it's not a complication, but ongoing pregnancy. So sometimes mm. things don't work the way they were intended and the woman still has a live baby. And actually a fair studies have shown a fair number of women choose to keep their baby. Um, but if she decides not to, then she's having a surgical procedure anyway. Another issue that happens is ectopic pregnancy. Now, ectopic pregnancy isn't a complication of the medications. Right. It's actually a contraindication to them. So an ectopic pregnancy is a pregnancy in the tube. And if you have a pregnancy in the tube, mifepristone and misoprostol won't treat that. Okay. If it's untreated, it ruptures, the woman hemorrhages. You know, when I take a woman to the OR with a ruptured ectopic pregnancy, she has a belly full of leaders of blood. So what, what, what has happened, there have been ectopic pregnancies. This medication should never be given to a woman with an ectopic pregnancy, but what's happening is it's being given without an ultrasound, without determining where is this pregnancy. I mean, there've been women who have died in the United States from ruptured ectopic pregnancies that were not detected when they took medication abortion. So those are kind of, that's kind of a summary. Now, if you look at, it depends really what, how common are those the, you know, we're taught, well, like I said, there's a narrative, it's safer than Tylenol. Well, it's right. not safer than Tylenol and it's getting to be as easy to get as Tylenol, but it's not safer than Tylenol. Um, if you look at US studies, it looks like, oh, maybe this is pretty safe. If you look at international studies, there's a different picture. I've taken a lot of these studies and really combed through them and Buzz, you know more than I that, you can take data and make it show different things. So um, a lot of the US studies have a, they have a very high loss to follow up. So a lot of the studies only look at certain complications. So they say, well, one study said, oh, this is a this percent complication rate. Well, no, it's this percent of those complications. Right. Um, 
The other big flaw in the US studies is, and this is kind of the loss of follow-up issue, is that the abortion providers who are often the ones doing those studies um, don't know of the complications. The women go to the ERs, ER and are treated otherwise. Um, there was a study in Finland by Ninamaki. And in that study, so in Finland, they have a national health registry. So they can look at all, they have all the data on every abortion and what happened and looked at them for six weeks. And they found that um, they were comparing medication or chemical abortion to surgical abortion. So women who had a chemical abortion, 15.6% of those women hemorrhaged compared to 2.1% mm. of women who had surgical abortion. And then incomplete abortion. So this means they need surgery, probably 6.7% in a medication or chemical abortion compared to 1.6% in a surgical abortion. Infection was about 1.7% for both. But any complication they found, medication abortion, 20% of women had a complication compared to 5.6% for surgical abortion. So, you know, any procedure has risk of complications, but unfortunately this is being promoted as, oh, it's safe, there's no problem, it's very safe. It's not, there's risks. Now, are there long-term effects uh, of chemical abortions? Has anybody studied kind of long-term side effects or long-term consequences? Yes. Now, certainly those are harder to study and they're not as well um, understood. There have been a lot of studies showing abortion and the relationship between abortion and preterm birth and a subsequent pregnancy. Um, and of course, some of that data is denied, but now, I will say most of those studies are looking at surgical abortions where there might be a particular mechanism for that. Um, there have been, uh, there is thought to be some relationship between a woman having a first pregnancy of, of an, her first pregnancy and abortion compared to a woman whose first pregnancy is a live birth and increased, um, almost doubles her risk of breast cancer. And that data isn't quite as, as good as some of the others. Um, risk of placenta previa, risk of, and then there's the mental health. Mm -hmm. um, and again, there's, um, you know, the link between mental health and abortion can certainly be difficult because some of the factors that maybe influence a woman getting an abortion are a factor in her mental health. But, um, you know, there was a, a study looking uh, at 75 studies on abortion mental health and 65% of them showed a, a correlation. Um, and then there is also maternal mortality. Mm -hmm. Women are more likely after an abortion for the 108 days after abortion to die compared to after a birth. Wow. So, so this is definitely, you know, regardless of what one believes about, you know, abortion, I mean, this is these are pretty. This is pretty sobering data uh, in in the sense that, mm -hmm. you know, if one in five women that get a chemical abortion very likely are going to have some serious, you know, side effects of that. So it's not something <laughs> that should be done lightly or without a physician's, you know, supervision, right? Okay. Uh, but my understanding is that, um, as you're saying, that chemical abortions are yeah, 
um, maybe uh, inappropriately accessible uh, to women. Could, could you speak a little bit about that? Yes, and they, they are, and it's being pushed by the FDA. I'd like to, to just to review a little bit about the history of what the FDA and their restrictions, what they've done and their restrictions on medication abortion. So medication abortion was approved in 2000 under specific safety regulations. It was approved up to um, 49 days, seven weeks gestation. It had to be prescribed by a physician. It had to be, um, there were three required office visits. The woman had to go on the first day. She had to go on, the, on day three and she had to go then two weeks after day 14. Um, the phys physician had to be able to diagnose ectopic pregnancy and determine how far along she was. The physician had to make sure she had access to medical facilities for hemorrhage or for transfusion or for surgical intervention. And the medication had to be, could only be dispensed in a certain healthcare setting. And the woman had to get it in person. And the abortion provider had to report any adverse events, transfusion, hospitalizations, ongoing pregnancy, any serious event and death to the FDA. So, that, that's been really changing in the last seven years. In 2016, the FDA, it, they increased the gestational age from seven weeks to 10 weeks. Now, what that means, you know, the farther along in pregnancy, the more complications of this intervention and the less chance it will do what they're trying to do. They also took, in fact, I have a slide to show if we could, I'll bring that up. Sure, that'd be great. I think this will... Um, Let me. There we go. There we go. There we go. So this was what I explained in 2000. So in 2016, they increased the gestational age to 70 days. They dropped the office visit from three visits to one on, on a follow-up visit. So you don't even have to go in before you get the abortion. It no longer has to be a physician. It has to be a healthcare provider, which they don't really define. Still had to be dispensed in a healthcare facility. But at the same time that they changed these restrictions, they um, eliminated all reporting requirements except to report death. So I don't know how you can monitor the effect of these changes. And then in 2020 and 2021, um, with COVID, they um, said it didn't have to be dispensed in person and they made that permanent in 2021. And also the other change is in 2021 is now it doesn't have to be dispensed in a healthcare facility. It can be dispensed in a pharmacy or by mail. And still the only adverse event that has to be reported is death. So, so how does the FDA justify this kind of significant change in, in the in the administration of, of chemical ab abortifacients? That is a great question. So in April of 2021, when Janet Woodcock of the FDA wrote a letter to ACOG, American College of OBGYN, 
who has been pushing for this and said they, they will not enforce the in-person requirement. She said, well, there haven't been a lot of adverse events reported. Well, of course there haven't because you're not requiring reporting. And then also she said, well, we looked at these four studies, I believe, yeah, four studies, and they don't really show a problem with, with uh, telemed abortion. And this, you know, there's of course problems with the studies and, you know, we're looking at four studies. So I, that, it's a great question. It's very concerning. So, so you've actually published some, some articles uh, as part of a research teams, really looking at um, like the, the, the reporting of the side effects for these chemical ab abortions, right? Yes. So let me, so this was an article I was a co-author, Deaths and Severe Adverse Events After the Use of Mifepristone as an Abortifacient. So the manufacturer, so again, before 2016, the, I'm sorry, not the manufacturer, the abortion provider was required to report any adverse events to the, the manufacturer who then reported to the FDA, which is all kind of weird. Um, so we actually, those are available by the Freedom of Information Act. So we got those reports. And um, actually there was a whole team of OBGYNs who coded these based on severity and looked at them. Um, you know, I mean, I spent hours just looking at each adverse event and coding them. Um, you know, and there, there's not that, that we found 3,197 unique adverse event reports, which isn't that many in, you know, 3.7 million medication abortions. Um, but, you know, we found some concerning things just in these reports and the care and what was missing. And we found that the abortion provider often wasn't the one taking care of the complication. Less than 40% of the DNCs that were needed to complete the abortion or to stop bleeding were performed by someone other than that. Uh, I'm sorry. The abortion provider only performed less than 40% of those. Mm. So another study, if you'd like to go here next, this is, this is not my paper. This is a paper by Cleland um, where they looked at over 200,000 medication abortions um, by Planned Parenthood in 2009 and 2010. And this is the paper I referred to where they said, um, only 0.65% risk of adverse event. Well, they only looked at eight adverse events, eight mm -hmm. specific adverse events. They didn't look at the most common adverse events, the ble bleeding without transfusion. They didn't look at DNC if it was done at the clinic. And they based all of their data all the, uh, for this study on these adverse event reports that they had to send in. So they're only reporting what they know about. You know, if a woman goes to the ER, a woman has bleeding, she goes to the ER, you know, she has a DNC and the abortion provider doesn't know about that. That's not even required to go to the FDA. The, the, the ER doctor isn't required to report that. So they're saying this, but what's interesting in this study, I was reading this study, studying this study, and I had just, I had done the other paper and I looked at all these adverse event reports and I said, this isn't right. They're saying, you know, they're saying we had 
in two years, we had this many adverse events. And I know we didn't have that many in our paper. Um, so, so just, you know, to clarify when this paper by Cleland was published, I'm sorry, the data they used was 2009, 2010. So they were required to report adverse events. So I and some colleagues went and pulled all the adverse events reports from 2009, 2010, and we found, so in that other paper where they say medication abortion is safe, in those, that two-year period, in 200,000 some abortions, medication abortions, they say Planned Parenthood, they reported 1,530 adverse events. But if you go to the FDA adverse event reporting system online, there's only 664. And if you look at what they gave us when we asked for them by the Freedom of Information Act for that first paper, there's only 330. So a couple things here. We know that 1530 is not valid. It's much higher than that. But even what they know and what they say they're reporting to the FDA or to the manufacturer and then the FDA isn't showing up in the FDA system. And when we as researchers are wanting to evaluate this and ask for them by the Freedom of Information Act, we're not getting all of that. So lots of concerns, you know, as you can see. So you don't, do you think this is a, a, an intentional suppression of data or is it just um, methodological? And maybe that's not a fair question to ask you. I, you know what? I can't make that judgment. I don't know. When I would look at the paper by Cleland and the discrepancy, you know, did Planned Parenthood report to the manufacturer? Did the manufacturer not, did, did Planned Parenthood not report to the manufacturer? Did the manufacturer not report to the FDA? Did the FDA not report to the wet, to, to their dashboard? I don't know where the link broke down. Hmm. I know their numbers are low, but I know that even what they're claiming isn't showing up in the FDA system. Yeah. So even when they were required to um, report adverse events, they're not accurate. So, so when people are making the claim that, you know, uh, taking the, the pills for a chemical abortion is really no different than, than taking Tylenol, and then they're going to data from the FDA to justify that, mm-hmm. you know, people could sincerely think that's to be, that's the case because of how low the numbers are when in fact, in, in reality, the numbers are, are much higher than that, and the, the risk is much greater than for, for uh, female patients. And again, as you're saying, what's being reported isn't the full range of side effects. It's really a, a subset of those, right? Correct. The FDA said, I think it's 4,000, uh, this number may be off. It's 4,000 something. I think it's 4,195 complications in their adverse event reporting system out of 3.7 million medication abortions from 2000 to 2018. That number doesn't make sense. Like that's like 0.11%. Every intervention has complications. Right. So even if there were a 2% complication rate, I mean, we're missing like, we're only seeing, I I think it's like 6% of what they're supposedly you know, is, is happening. It's, it's just not, things aren't adding up. I don't know where, 
the breakdown is, but I think we need to, women deserve to know the truth. And, you know, even if you were to say that abortion is a woman's right, she should be treated medically appropriately. Right. So, so there's really, you know, again, <laughs> the, the larger issue here isn't, again, whether you and I are, are uncomfortable with abortion because we see it as terminating a human life. Uh, the, really, the, the, the question here is that for whatever motivation, women are not being given appropriate medical care. That, that to me seems to be the, maybe the larger issue that should be concerning to everybody. That is of great concern to me. And, and what's happening now is it's being pushed more and more, as you can see how the FDA, where the FDA has taken uh, mifepristone abortions, medication abortions, and now it's being pushed online. And I mean, it's very easy to get a medication abortion, to get those pills. Now, now you know, we're, we are heading into the, into the summer as we're recording this interview and you know, the, the, the thought is that the Supreme Court is going to overturn, in effect, uh, Roe v. Wade. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if that's the case, you know, it's easy to envision how chemical abortions might even become more commonplace. Mm -hmm. You know, there might even be a black market of sorts that emerges. Mm -hmm. So um, speak a little bit to that, you know, is that a real concern, you know, from your standpoint as a physician, you know, how do you react to that possible um, scenario? I would say there already is a black market. And the, as I said, the FDA is paving the way. So, you know, I explained how, how they were, you know, the whole process. And now there's a push toward telemed abortion, removing the doctor. Well, the doctor's already removed from the picture, but even we're, we're removing the healthcare provider. So, you know, a doctor's supposed to be, the provider's supposed to be able to tell where the pregnancy is and how far along the woman is. And there's not even an ultrasound required. There's not even a visit required. There's not even a physician required. And now it's actually very easy to go online and get the abortion pill through telemedicine. There, there is a site it will ask you what your state is. And, you know, some, some states have restrictions even now, like there are right now there's 32 states that require a physician. There's 19 that prohibit telemedicine, but you can go on this site and put in your state. Okay. Your state, this is how you can get an abortion. You can get these pills and they'll send you to other websites. I mean, you can put this pill in a shopping cart, like you're buying something on Amazon. Mm. And it's just, it's problematic. I mean, it, it, and so as a, I mean, a rule of thumb, self-managed medical care isn't, the, isn't advisable under, you know, almost any circumstance, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and so, um, you know, again, you know, what are your, what are your concerns, you know, in, in general about you know, complications that can occur through self-managed abortions. And again, how is Roe v. Wade going to impact this, do you think? Sure. Well, we talked about the complications before. Now, if you're talking about self-managed abortion or demedicalization or 
many forms of telemed abortion, we're looking at a whole new set of complications. So for example, estimated gestational age, medication abortions approved up to 70 days, seven, uh, 10 weeks. If it's given later, there's higher complications, there's less chance of, of quote unquote success. A lot of times online, it will ask, what, is your, what was the date of your last menstrual period? How sure are you? Um, it'll go by the last menstrual period, which we know is uh, for many women, not very reliable. So women, you know, and this has happened. There was a big issue that happened in the UK. When women had, if, if women think they're eight weeks and they're really 13 weeks, they're gonna have more complications. The other issue is ectopic pregnancy. They online, you know, I've gone through these websites, the online to see how they do it. And they will ask, say, well, do you have any risk factors for ectopic pregnancy? No, have you ever had an ectopic pregnancy? So they screen that by risk factors, but a lot, great proportion of women with ectopic pregnancy don't have risk factors. The only way to tell where the pregnancy is, is to have an ultrasound. To be given this medication without an ultrasound is un unconscionable. Yeah. And then there's like, you know, the whole ROGAM RH status. So 15% of women in North America are RH negative. They have a negative blood type. And any woman with a negative blood type in any pregnancy, miscarriage, abortion, ectopic, live birth, we give a ROGAM. It's basically a I hate to say vaccine because it's a bad word now, but you know, prevents the baby from forming it, you know, the woman from forming antibodies and mm. um and causing problems in a future pregnancy. Well, if we don't, if if the woman's getting this online and she happens to be RH negative and she has abortion and she doesn't get rogam, and then in a future pregnancy can cause problems. Mm. I think another issue is access to care. So this is being pushed, access is being pushed, particularly for women maybe who are farther away from a facility, but that's the problem when it was approved, they had to have access to a facility. We already know that abortion providers aren't caring many of them for their complications. So what's gonna happen when there is no abortion provider? The woman has hemorrhage at home, while you or I may live close to an ER, but some women don't. What, I mean, and then and they're going to end up in the ER. I think the other issue, there's some other domestic issues like domestic violence, um, which studies have shown this is about four times higher in unwanted, undes, unwanted and pregnancies and women seeking abortion. So, you know, we're as physicians, we're supposed to screen for this. We're supposed to, supposed to screen for this particularly in women seeking abortion. How, how do we screen for this? And then there's traffickers um, and reproductive coercion. So there have been um, in the news, you know, many cases where, or a handful of cases at least, where a man's gotten the medication abortion pill for her girlfriend and put it in her drink, drink to induce the pregnancy. Well, they shouldn't have access to this. And then with women who are trafficked, we know that women who are trafficked are getting abortions. Many of them are forced abortions. And, you know, women who are trafficked, one of the few places they actually show 
up is to a healthcare provider. And as healthcare providers, we're not really very good about detecting these women, but that is a, mm. op- a rare opportunity for them. And if we're missing that opportunity, it's just going to be more, um, more forced abortions. Yeah. And the other thing is informed consent. You know, as, as a physician, I need to tell my patient, this is, these are the risks, these are the benefits, these are your options. How, how do you do that online? Yeah, yeah. I think it's a very, I'm very, it's a very concerning scenario. And with Roe v. Wade, like I said, it's being pushed. So if your state decides outlaws abortion, then they're providing other avenues for you to get it through the mail. Yeah, yeah. So uh, uh, a couple more questions. Um, and then I want to ask you just a few philosophical questions as well. Um uh, you know, can chemical abortions be reversed and how successful are these reversals if they can be reversed? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Yes, sometimes they can be reversed. I'd like to pull up a, a, another slide here. Uh, let me get this slide. So in some cases, abortion, a medication abortion can be reversed. Now, as we discussed, the first medication is an anti-progesterone, mifepristone. And sometimes after the woman takes that medication, she changes her mind. And there have been some studies where they've looked at giving those women progesterone to overcome the anti-progesterone effects of the mifepristone. And what they have found is that in about two thirds of the cases, the baby can be saved. Mm. Um, Now, if the woman simply, let's say she takes the first medicine, changes her mind and doesn't take the second medication, misoprostol, about 25% of the time, the baby will live. Mm. If she takes, um, you know, the high dose progesterone, it's up to about two thirds of the time. So this is a website I want to show, abortionpillreversal.com. This is a network of physicians. It's not, you know, it's totally above board physicians who are trained in this. And um, I I believe this this site would connect you to a local physician who Mm. would be able to manage this if someone, um, you know, if they're in that situation. Okay, well, uh, Chris, th- thank you for mu- so much. Uh, I, as we get ready to kind of close the interview, this has been incredibly informative, and I learned uh, I've learned a ton of, of, of things I didn't know about chemical abortions and 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 how they're administered and and what the the potential side effects are. Uh, you know, a couple of philosophical type uh, questions. Uh, you, you mentioned that, you know, you take the view that human life begins at the point of conception, which is the, the view that I would share with you. Uh, but what do you say to uh, somebody who's a pro-choice advocate who says, well, yes, indeed, you know, an unborn child is a is a human, biologically speaking, but it's not a person mm-hmm. uh, that it, 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 you know, however they go define, you know, what a person is. The claim is that it's not a person, therefore abortion really isn't terminating a human life in that sense. And that is the narrative now. This is, okay, it's a life. You say it's not a life. Okay, it's a life, but it's not a person. Well, then when does personhood begin? Mm-hmm. If the baby, the toddler crawling around your living room is a person and the baby I just delivered is a person, 
is the baby that is about to come out not a person? Mm. You know, we know that uh, you know gestation is forty weeks, and and now babies as early as twenty two weeks can live outside the womb. So are, do we say that's a person? But do we say that two hours before it's born, it's not a person? There, there's no event that happens. I mean, this is mm. um, clearly, I believe, this is this is a human being born, you know, in in the image of God. Yeah, well, and and there's a challenge, I think, scientifically speaking, defining, you know, it, it's not so it's not even just where do you the limit when a person begins and ends, but scientifically, how would you actually go about defining a person? It seems like it really is a philosophical decision as to what you're going to determine as a person. And that feels a bit arbitrary to me. Right. Yeah, and I would suggest also if it does become a person somewhere in there, which I don't believe, but who am I to make that decision and, Mm. and potentially kill a human being? I, I, we have to, I mean, I believe that it's a person, he or she is a person at conception, but even if you didn't believe that, I think you'd have to err on the side of saying it is a person at conception because where else, right. Can you arbitrarily choose that? Well, I mean, that the, the, the point of, of conception is where the great discontinuity takes place, where you now have, as a result of that event, uh, a, a unique individual, right? You know, and, it, and, and that is, um, has the capacity to, to grow and develop into a, you know, a fully developed, fully formed human being. Uh, but that's the point of, of, of discontinuity in my mind. Right. Yeah. All right. Well, one final question, Chris, and um, and this maybe is uh, uh, appealing to your your training in ministry. What would you say to someone, both men and women, uh, who've been involved in an abortion, you know, and maybe they've come to regret this, or they feel like because they've been involved in abortion, that um, that they're they're that they've done that which is unspeakable that which can't ever be forgiven what would you say great question and abortion is very common so i'm sure people who are listening to this are in this situation and i would say first of all that god offers forgiveness and healing you know some are trying to promote abortion as a wonderful thing we've heard shout your abortion I love abortion. The truth is women carry these scars for a long time. When I take a history on a patient, you know, how many pregnancies, how many deliveries, how many miscarriage. I mean, when they talk about abortion, almost without exception, there is a change in their countenance. Uh, You can see that there's discomfort there. And so I think that many women do feel guilt and shame and regret. And I would say they're again, there's forgiveness and healing in God. And um, there is a lot of resources out there, a lot of resources for women who have had an abortion. And I encourage people to seek a counselor, to share your story with someone you can trust, to check out some of these resources. I think there's Rachel's Vineyard, Stand Up Girl. There's many, many resources out there. And, and God, God offers forgiveness and healing. Yeah. Well, Chris, thank you so much for taking the, the time uh, to be with us and, and again, sharing your you know, invaluable insight into this really difficult question, you know, uh, are chemical abortions safe? And, uh, 
you know, uh, I've learned a lot and um, I hope our, our viewers have learned a lot as well. And, you know, really, I think the the ultimate motivation for, for this particular episode is really getting good information in the hands of of everyone, regardless of their particular perspective on, on abortion, you know, and, uh, and though both you and I are pro-life, you know, we want to make sure above all that, that really women are, are well-treated and in, in that really they have the access to the best possible medical care. And that again is a real motivation for this episode. And, and I, you know, when we chatted before this episode, I was just shocked to learn at a how common chemical abortions are, but b really how dangerous they are. So thanks again for, for helping us, you know, with this uh, challenging question. Uh, for those of you that are watching this and you're interested in getting more resources on this whole issue of, uh, of of abortion and the whole idea of 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 a pro-life position from a, a scientific, philosophical, and, and biblical perspective, uh, I would invite you to check out a, a special page on our website at reasons.org. And that special page is entitled, um, let's see here, uh, Human Value in Scripture, Science, and Society, where there's a, a collection of blog articles and videos and interviews that we've done that relate to, to pro-life questions. And we're going to be continuing to populate this page with resources that we'll be developing over the course of the summer. Chris, this interview will be on that page as well, uh, as long as and, and also will be released through our YouTube channel and on our Facebook page. Um, and to get to that that site, you can go to reasons.org and just search human value, or the URL is reasons.org slash human value as all one word. Um, uh, I just want to say thank you to our listeners. Uh, if you really got a lot out of this particular episode, please share it, uh, with friends and, and, and people that you are, that are part of your sphere of influence. Uh, and I just want to leave people with this thought that the more that we discover about science, the more that we have reasons to believe. So again, check out our website reasons.org and, and check out the human value page. Uh, also, uh, follow us on social media, RTB underscore official. And uh, if you are interested in uh, subscribing to our YouTube channel, it's Reasons to Believe, hit the subscribe button and you'll get access to uh, a lot of great resources dealing with science faith issues. And uh, last but not least, don't forget to set a reminder uh, so that you are notified when uh, the next episode of Star Cells and God drops. And so uh, again, uh, until next time, I hope all of you are stay safe and are healthy and remain in good spirits. God bless you. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you so much.